I'm Tracy McCauley. And I'm Liz Zuleika. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to Cardioscripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. Enjoy the episode. Today on Cardioscripts, it is my pleasure to welcome back Dr. Toby Trujillo. As a reminder, Dr. Trujillo is an associate professor of clinical pharmacy at the University of Colorado and a clinical specialist in cardiovascular pharmacotherapy and anticoagulation at the University of Colorado Hospital. He has agreed to be part of a short series of episodes where Liz and I have invited back some previous guests to address updates to the topics they first discussed with us. In your case, Toby, we're going to continue talking about colchizine. So welcome back. Well, thank you, Tracy. It's a real honor and a pleasure to be back uh, with you again. I'd like to encourage anyone who hasn't listened to it to pause and listen to episode 14 on the Colcott trial. Today, we're going to take a deeper dive into the LODOCO2 trial, which was presented at ESC in August and simultaneously published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Worth briefly mentioning is that the first LODOCO trial was published in 2013, and although it showed promise, it did not have a placebo arm, whereas the LODOCO2 trial was a multicenter, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial that included patients who were 35 to 82 years of age and had any evidence of coronary disease from either angiography or even a coronary artery calcium score greater than 400. And patients had to be clinically stable for at least six months. Patients were excluded if they had severe heart failure or valvular disease or moderate or severe renal impairment, or known side effects to colchizine. 6,528 patients started a one-month open-label run-in, and 5,522 were then randomized to receive colchizine 0.5 milligram daily or placebo. 437 of those that were lost during the run-in phase were due to GI upset. Patients were followed for a median of 28.6 months, or about six months longer than the Colcott trial, and the primary outcome was death from cardiovascular causes, spontaneous non-procedural myocardial infarction, stroke, or ischemia-driven coronary revascularization. For the results, what we ended up enrolling in this trial was patients with a mean age of 66 years. 15% of patients were female, 18% with diabetes, and race was not reported. The comorbid conditions, patients, about 84% of patients had a prior MI with the majority of those being greater than two years prior. 11% of patients were smokers. And unlike the Colcott trial protocol, they did not require guideline-directed medical therapy for enrollment. However, patients appeared to be on fairly good medical therapy for stable ischemic heart disease with 99.7 on antiplatelet or anticoagulant, 97% on a lipid-lowering agent. And notably, 94% of that was statin with almost 20% on azetamib. 60% were on beta blocker, another 20% on calcium channel blocker, and 70% on RAS inhibitors. Primary endpoint was statistically significantly lower in the colchizine-treated patients and occurred in 6.8% of patients in the colchizine arm and 96 in the placebo for an absolute risk reduction of 2.8% and a number needed to treat of 36 the findings were consistent across all specified subgroups, and as far as individual components of the composite, both MI and revascularization were statistically significantly lower. However, stroke and CV death were not. 10.5% of participants discontinued study drug, and ADRs were similar in both groups, including new, new cancer diagnoses and infections. So the bottom line, there were really similar findings in a slightly different population to the Colcott trial. 
and offered further support for the use of colchizine for the prevention of ischemic cardiovascular events. So now's my confession time. If I wasn't going to talk to you about the Colcott trial several months ago, I probably would never have read it and would have just kind of blown off colchizine in this space. However, because we had done that deep dive, when I heard the results of the Lodo CO2 trial, I was actually pretty interested. So what did you think? Yeah, yeah, definitely, Teresa. I think I would concur with that sort of mindset. You know, when we talked about Colcott a couple months ago, and we talked about how we thought the, the results were, were interesting for sure. Um, certainly, you know, conceptually, it makes sense in terms that atherosclerosis is an inflammatory disease if you target inflammation. Although not every sort of avenue that's been looked at has been successful. So for instance, the methotrexate study was not positive, but the other trial, Cantos, was positive in terms of reducing uh, ischemic events, although infections were, were increased. And so maybe it depends on how you target infection or uh, inflammation, excuse me. But there were a couple of things that sort of gave me pause about the Colcott. And that was um, one, they didn't really do a good job of sort of telling you what background therapy people were on. So I think we talked about, you know, it was unclear how many people were on ACEs and ARBs. Um, you saw how many people were on statins. And really the benefit was driven by was hospitalization for angina, you know, which is, you know, we shouldn't just sort of toss to the side, but certainly it's not a harder endpoint that we're sort of more accustomed to looking at when it comes to cardiovascular disease. So with the LODO-CO2 trial, I think, you know, the results of these sort of build on that and I think make colchicine a more interesting option. So one, uh, yeah, the primary endpoint was reduced, but um, there was a statistically significant reduction in revascularization as well as myocardial infarction. Um, and I think that's, that's significant. And two, while you, they didn't require guideline-directed medical therapy, but 70% of the people were on ACE inhibitors, over 90% were on statins. So clearly things that we normally would expect people to be on because they theoretically target inflammation, the people were on, or at least a great majority of people were on. So to me, this trial kind of almost kind of makes you, kind of gives you not a little punch in the face, but almost like, hey, no, 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 colchicine probably needs to be part of your, your armamentarium to, to manage people with stable ischemic heart disease, um, building upon all the stuff that's come before. It's a little harder to ignore, isn't it, at this point? It, yeah, I, th I think it is a little harder to ignore. Now, you still have, you know, can people tolerate it? So they had a run-in period, right? So they washed out everybody who's not going to tolerate the drug. So that's fine. But you have the additional pill burden, you have the additional cost. Nobody's going to do this in lieu of beta blocker, ACE inhibitor, or R statin, um, or anything else that they might need for lipid lowering therapy or blood pressure control. Like all those things should probably take place first. But I think once you reach that point where you feel like you've optimized a patient's regimen as best you can, it probably should come into play that this, this agent should be considered for those people with stable ischemic heart disease. And I think it's across the spectrum too. So Colcott was people who had just had an MI, right? Most of the people in this study, Lodoco 2 had, were really stable. They were greater than 24 months out from their last cardiac event. So again, I think like you just said, it becomes harder to ignore and yeah. probably really should consider it as part of therapy. I'd be curious to see what guy, obviously what guidelines do, whether it's, you know, European or American Heart Association or ACC, ACC but I suspect that this will make work, this will work its way in. Yeah. And there is the ongoing clear synergy trial, which is looking at peristemi patients. So right. that will be an interesting group to add. I think the maybe disappointing thing, and I have to speak up for 
you know, women in clinical trials for my part, but was the low enrollment of women. I don't know if that's important or not, but we seem to neglect that patient population a lot in ischemia. And this was an even more gross underrepresentation at only 15% or so in the trial. I, I was disappointed to see that percentage as well. Now, related to tolerability, I think, you know, we always question the run-in period. I don't think we have as many trials we've talked about on CardioScripts that have a, a run-in, but as it relates to this, they they took out the people who weren't going to tolerate it. So maybe we could say when you start the drug, if you applied it to these patients, you're going to expect about 15% of them to have a problem tolerating it. Um, yeah. What other things do you take away from that? Uh, that's about it, really. I think um, I think from a trial perspective, you're trying to identify, you're trying to get a group of uh, subjects where you can actually demonstrate whether the drug has value or not. And and I think as long as clinicians recognize, that, as long as they don't gloss over the idea that, yeah, probably two out of ten people they're going to start it in. I'm just at, I'm rounding up, may not tolerate it and may not be able to take it, um, and that they may need to really follow up with the patient relatively closely in the first two, four, six weeks or whatever it is after they're initiating the drug um, to make sure they're tolerating it okay. If, I imagine if people have significant GI distress, they're not going to, they're probably not going to start. They might start not take their other medications too, which could be a problem as well, right? So. Uh, and that's just speculation. I have no idea if that's, mm-hmm. that's true or not, but it seems to, you know, in terms of me and what I do day to day and manage seeing people in the hospital with managing anticoagulation, there's tons of people that come in that have stopped eating because they're sick. They have upper respiratory symptoms and they've stopped taking everything, right? So it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility, but I think as long as clinicians are cognizant of the idea that even if they think it's an appropriate option to start in the patient, counsel the patient on what to expect, certainly. And that, yeah, maybe one to two out of 10 people are not going to tolerate it and they're not going to be able to be on it. And I think it was maybe reassuring to us that we didn't see the infection rates, even the way we did in Colcott. Um, What else are your maybe thoughts on how we approach this related to monitoring for infection? Or do we even need to do that given the findings here? My first impression was that we may not even really need to have any sort of specific monitoring plan from an infection standpoint based on the results here. I think infections were increased a little bit in Colcott, but they weren't, it wasn't dramatic like it was for the, the Cantos trial in that, in that particular agent. So yeah, I, I would probably outside of maybe routine follow-up that you would normally do with the patient. Um, I don't know if I would do anything specific to be honest. Yeah. And now, because I know you, well, I'm going to put you on the spot <laughs> a little bit. Okay. This is just going to be a fun game. Okay. So in, I'm thinking of a trial that was published in 2001. Oh, the Lord. study evaluated the addition of a medication for the management of recent non-ST segment ACS, and its addition led to a decrease in the composite of CV mortality, non-fatal MI, and stroke of 2.1% with the number needed to treat of 48. And it is still widely used without any question. So what am I thinking of? 2001? Oh, man. Mm-hmm. You may or may not have given a presentation on it yesterday. <laughs> oh, is that right? Yesterday? So clearly that must be talking. Is it, it's not the cure. Is it cure trial? No. Sure. It is the cure trial. Okay. Sure. So the dual antiplatelet therapy. Sure. Dual yeah. antiplatelet therapy. I had trouble reading this and not making some parallels in my head of a similar composite reduction in non-fatal MIs. Obviously we're talking about completely different mechanisms. So no one misinterpret what I'm saying, but the adoption of that was without question, but was driven by pharma. It was a brand name drug. Right. That's, that's a good point. So I I really want to understand like, what's it going to take you and maybe your colleagues, um, the cardiology community to really start using this drug. And should we, if we were willing to adopt 
adapt so readily. Wow, that's curveball. Nice. I like it's it. Curveball. Do you like that? I'm getting I'm getting better at this. You are, and I like that. <laughs> uh, I think you're well, I think your statement, just thinking about it, your statement that you know Clopidogrel is clearly driven by big pharma, I think helped drive that. I think mechanistically it made it made a lot of sense. I think people were maybe a little bit more aware and cognizant of the idea that aspirin alone may at that time maybe wasn't enough, right? You still had a lot of people having recurrent events, even on aspirin. Mm -hmm. Whereas yeah, here, we're not going to have big pharma driving this, right? So this is going to be more guideline driven if it, it works its way into guidelines, right? Otherwise, it's going to be individual clinicians at their at their sites that are going to be trying to I think identify patients that they might think might benefit from this, right? And so that will naturally fall to the people who are the sickest. So maybe folks that have had multiple events um, and they're like trying to optimize therapy. I think those the people, you know, this I think provides more comfort in like, yep, yeah, I'm going to do this because it's going to provide some benefits. But I think outside of a big, at least from a, a an incorporation into guidelines, and then that disseminating down through that that particular process. Uh, it's, it'll probably be a slower adoption, right? And then again, you're at that time in 2001, geez, I mean, ACE and ARB therapy wasn't even standard of care, quite frankly, right? Um, so you, and I think statins were thought of standard of care, but um, you, you had a much lower, a smaller sort of toolbox to pull from. Patients were taking less drugs, right? And I think there's still the idea that if you've got a patient on aspirin and maybe, you know, maybe they're on DAP, beta blocker, ACE, ARB, um, and this is just if they have stable ischemic heart disease, forget if they have heart failure or anything else, right? Um, statin, you know, you're, you're adding on this twice daily drug that's costly. Um, so it's going to be a challenge for sure. Um, but I don't think we can question whether or not it would be beneficial from a clinical standpoint anymore. Yeah. I like, I like that comment. I mean, I think the, the polypharmacy thing is what I'm hearing from a lot of the physicians too, which yeah. is interesting to me as a pharmacist, cause I'm glad they're talking about it, but I also, like I said, I just am having trouble with why I'm not that excited about it, but I am getting there. I think you'll end up seeing people where you're like, oh, wait a minute, where you'll have people in front, patients in front of you, not your sort of run of the mill standard patients who maybe have been newly diagnosed stable ischemic heart disease, or maybe they had a recent coronary event. You're going to focus on getting them on the stuff that we're used to getting them on, right? So beta blockers, ACEs, ARBs, statins, optimizing their blood pressure, optimizing their lipids. If they have any kind of heart failure, you're going to try to optimize, you know, care for that. And then I think once you get there, this is this should probably pop into people's minds. Maybe my guess, as opposed it's, to as opposed to you're not going to start. Like I said, you're not going to start with this. You're not going to do this in lieu of uh, one of those other uh, well-studied classes of medications. Absolutely. So any final thoughts for you on colchizine and maybe what's next? Are you going to go out and recommend it and someone find that patient today? I don't know if I'm going to go out and find that patient today, but I, it's definitely like, I think it's just, it's, you know, you, you mentioned the talk I gave yesterday at ACCPA and I, I, I mentioned, you know, this is obviously a different topic. I saw react five, but for me, it brought Prozogrel back into the mix of consideration. And I think, that's most probably the same mindset here. It's, you know, scene is now something that should be in the mix of consideration for people with uh, ASCVD. Yeah. Well, thank you. And once again, thanks for being on CardioScripts. We appreciate it. No, it's, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Tracy. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts 
and check out our website at cardioscripts.com. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.